Thank you, Mitch. Team, awesome time of worship, ministry with one another. If you're new to fullness, uh, this is your first time here, or you've only been here a couple of times, <clears throat> one of the things that we do during our public worship on Sunday morning, we, we worship God by singing praises. We study God's Word together because we believe that uh, God's Word is life and it gives us direction. Uh, Also, we pray for one another, uh, as we did this morning. We believe that the body of Christ lifts up the body through the power of the Spirit. We pray for one another. So it it may vary week to week, but we try to keep those components pretty faithful in our Sunday morning worship. Worship of God through the singing of praises, study of God's Word, and ministry together. So welcome. We're glad that you're here. Take your Bibles and turn to probably one of the most familiar passages in the entire Bible, John 3. John 3, we have, since the beginning of the year, been talking about the power of story, Uh, the power of story, how we are a people of story, God's story of redemption through Jesus Christ, which is uh, pictured throughout the entire Bible, I believe, from Genesis to Revelation. We see God's story unveiled, and the interpretive key of the entire scripture as I've said over and over again, is Jesus. He brings it to life. We've looked at our story that we're not in this alone, that we are a people. God is calling out a people of God, so it's about our story together. It's also about my story, the power of a transformed life, Uh, the, the blind man who couldn't answer all the theological questions, but when called before the religious authorities, But the one thing he could say was, I once was blind, but now I see. Every single one of us has a story to share. Cheryl helped us understand how faith is a part of our story and how we speak to one another uh, helps faith rise up within us and we act upon the faith that we have and the faith that we speak into our own lives Last week, uh, I talked about overcoming failure. What happens when your life goes off story? For those of you who weren't here last week, a lot of you have already listened to the sermon, to Adam's testimony. Incredible responses. If you haven't heard it, I encourage you to to listen to it again uh, or to listen to it uh, because we all experience failure. Every single person in this room. You may not know the failures of people's lives, but I got to tell you, I I know, I know that every single one of us, our lives have gone off story somewhere. Sometimes we're really ashamed to share that off story part because we got there through our own sin. But God is, listen, here's one thing I know about fullness. I'm trying to say this nicely, but I'll just go ahead and say it. You know what? The more you screw up, the more you're loved. I mean, really, I've never been a part of a church where, where uh, people mess up and rather than being treated as outcast or shunned in any way, they are incredibly loved. And to me, that is a testimony of the body of Christ. Now, that's not to say we have some people who aren't a little bit judgmental. I mean, we've all got that on us, right? But I'm just saying that If you've messed up, there is room for God's grace. His grace is indeed greater than your sin. And you're among a people who I believe will love you and help you overcome. 
Today, I want to kind of take a turn and talk about really how we share God's story, our story, my story with the world around us. And so I want to begin a short series called Bold, and that's unleashing really your story, unleashing God's faith in your life. And to lay the foundation, I want to look at one of the most familiar passages, probably the first one you ever memorized when you were in church, this, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The story of the gospel. The story of what it is that we have to share. So I want to introduce the series just a little bit. The introduction will be a little longer. And then I want to kind of hit this morning some of the things we have to share And they're pretty clear from this passage in John chapter 3. But let's start by talking a little bit about how to live lives of boldness. You know, here at Fullness, sometimes we have to share the building among various groups. In other words, it it may be on a given night that several activities are going on in our building at at any given time. Um, We have... um, a group that John Cleveland leads called the Corvair Club. <clears throat> My kids didn't even know what a Corvair was. Uh, one night we were coming by here and they were talking about, what are all these old cars sitting out front? I tried to explain to them that a Corvair was, I wish John were here. John's not here, is he? John, um, so, I'm sorry, what? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> especially now that I'm calling him out. Um, Anyway, they have a club that meets up here, and they're a group that talk about the Corvair, which was a car built by Chevrolet in the 1960s. Pretty controversial car, but it's a cute car. Anyway, they were, they were up here Friday night meeting, and at the same time, we had um, a children's event going on. Uh, the Corvair Club was up, I think, in the youth room, and the children's event was downstairs. So um, there was the Bible Blitz that Kathy had going on, and uh, there was parents' night out, so building was pretty well covered, covered with people. Well, at some point during the evening, a couple of men showed up at the kitchen door or into the kitchen, and um, Carrie Ann and I think Caroline Couch were in the kitchen, and these two men came in, and, and Carrie Ann said to the men, what are you doing here? Well, we're coming to use the kitchen, and she said, I don't know you. You can't come in. And they said, well, we want to warm something up in the oven. And she said, I'm sorry, we're having a children's event here. You, I don't know you. You can't come in. And uh, the guy said, but, but this is my church. And Carrie Ann said, I don't care. I don't know you. You can't come in. And I wish John were here so that I could introduce Carrie Ann to John Cleveland. <laughs> Uh, who indeed is a longtime member of our church. Look, you could be five foot nothing, but if you got boldness on you, somebody's going to back up. Amen? And five foot is generous. Look, there's something about being a mom and protecting your children that gives you a boldness, right? Listen. The Bible teaches us that there's something about being in Christ that gives us boldness. It makes the unbold bold and the bold bolder. We need the healthy 
I'm not talking about ugly or arrogant or that style of boldness. I'm talking about a holy boldness that comes upon us. I'm not going to have you raise your hand. Hopefully, you're still reading your Bible through. Hopefully, you're, you're in the passage in Exodus, one of the most fascinating passages to me, where God appears in a burning bush to Moses, right? Appears in a bush, says, hey, I've heard the cries of my people. I'm going to get them free. You're going down. And Moses basically says to God, but who am I? Who am I to go down and deliver these people? To which God says what to him? If you remember, God doesn't say, hey, you're special, buddy. No, God says, I'll be with you. I mean, the answer to Moses' question about who am I is not who am I, but God says, what matters is who I am. And I'll be with you. Now, Moses, you would have thought at this point, would have said, okay, let's go. But Moses has a whole series of questions that continue from here. He then says, okay, this is really his deal. But he says to God, okay, but who are you? In other words, when I get down there and they say, and I say, I'm here to let you free, set you free, and the people say, yeah, who are you? Well, God who sent me. And they're going to say, well, who is this God? God says, I am that I am. I am everything. Again, at this point, you would have thought Moses would have said, okay, let's go. But Moses has, keeps going. He says, well, what if they don't believe me? What if I get down there and I say, you're with me, and I am that I am is with me, and they don't believe me. What do I do then? God says what? Throw down that staff in your hand. It turns to a snake. What does Moses do? He runs away from his own staff. And God calls him back and says, pick it up, and it becomes a staff. He tells him to put his hand in his cloak, pull it out. It's, I, can't, I feel like a T-Rex with one hand. I'll try and just go left-handed. I went to a dance the other night with Annalise, and they, she and Rachel were cracking up at me. Did you hear Rachel laughing already at me dancing? One-handed. Anyway, put your arm in your cloak. Pull it out. It's leprosy. Put it back in. It's not leprosy. I mean, he just goes through this series of deals, and you think Moses would have said. Moses keeps going, though. He said, and he keeps saying, by the way, <laughs> I love the passage. I don't know if in your translation it says the same thing. He said, Lord, pardon me for asking this. But, I mean, every time he asks, Lord, pardon me, because he knows. I mean, the bush is burning. God's speaking to him. He says, I, I don't speak so well. And God says, who made your mouth and tongue? Finally, Moses just gets to the crux of the issue. He says, I don't want to. I mean, that's really what he says. Please find somebody else. I don't want to go. At which point, God's anger burns against Moses. Look, God was willing to answer Moses' objections until the point where Moses said, I don't want to. Moses did go. And the change from Moses on that mountain to Moses before Pharaoh is remarkable to me. The guy who questioned, the guy who didn't want to go, the guy who didn't speak, suddenly it seems as if there is a boldness on him that allows him to help set the nation 
free. Listen, you, you're maybe sitting here today saying, I'm really not anything. And I, I don't want to disagree with you. I mean, really, I, I'm not trying to be ugly, but in and of myself, I am weak. I, I have a number of failures. I am not strong. I, I, I would have done anything other than be a preacher. Anything. I didn't want to speak before people. I, I know you're the... We all have these things, these weaknesses that we have in our lives, but if we indeed believe that God's sovereign power is great, as we sang earlier, then we can be unlimited in his hands. As a result, we have the ability to be bold. Look at some scripture passages that talk about boldness just a minute. Just, you can just highlight, write these down, look at them later if you like. In Acts 4.13, Peter and John are called before the religious leaders, and it says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Source of boldness. Not their education, not their standing in life, but the fact that they had been with Jesus caused them to be bold. Proverbs 28.1 says this, The wicked flee, though no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. You ever watch those uh, National Geographic specials? You know, I I love those nature deals. Where the lion, the the way the lion just walks, it's like nothing's in their way. I mean, there's a boldness to their walk. Compare a lion with a deer. You know, a deer is skittish kind of looks around all the time like something's going to get it because something usually might or is. Some hunter in a tree stand that sprayed themselves with Lord knows what in order to be unseen. They're skittish. I mean, they're just... But lions, they don't act like that. They walk boldness. I'm not talking about prancing. I'm just talking about there's a boldness that comes on you if you are righteous. And how do you get righteous? Through Jesus. Not through your own acts, not through your own might, but because of who Jesus has made you to be. Acts 4.29 says, Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. There's prayers for boldness. I mean, when, I mean, this is after Peter and John get back. They're perceived as bold. They get back. They've been told, don't ever do this again. You're on double secret probation if you, if you ever do this again. And they go back and they say, God, give us more boldness. Give us more boldness to speak out. Hebrews 4.16 says, So then, therefore, come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Hebrews 13.6 says, So we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Listen, all these passages and many others basically say this. When we realize who we are and who lives in us, then we can live, love, worship, share, pray more boldly. This is a series about bold living and giving away our faith to others. To do so, to give background to this, I just want to look at this very familiar passage from John chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. You remember, this is the story of Nicodemus. 
Nicodemus is a religious leader. He comes to Jesus in the middle of the night because he probably doesn't want to be seen by the others. He kind of comes secretively to speak to Jesus. And, and he, he basically says, hey, I perceive you're a, a great religious leader. And Jesus flips the conversation without Nicodemus ever even asking a question. And Jesus basically says to him, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again. I mean, Nicodemus hadn't even asked, how do, how, do I, how do I get in the kingdom of heaven or how do I come to God? I mean, Jesus knows what's in his heart. And Nicodemus says, well, how can this be? How can a man get born again? And Jesus says, listen, it's not about being born again physically. It's about being born again spiritually. Unless you're born again spiritually, unless you have a birth that comes by the Spirit of God, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. And listen, Nicodemus knows the phrase kingdom of heaven means God's kingdom, relationship with God, God as king. It's a very familiar phrase to him. And again, Nicodemus now just asks, well, how can this be? And here's what Jesus says. Here's his answer to him about how you can enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, I believe within these seven or eight verses is what the the core components of what we share or what we have to give away to others, the core components of the good news or gospel of Jesus Christ as seen by Jesus and then commented on by John. So here's... I'm going to read 14 through 21, and then I want to kind of hit these points. I can't see if I'm at the right point. Yeah. Uh, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light, And will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Many layers to this passage, but I believe, again, this gives us a a, a, a glimpse of the bold truth that we have to share with those around us. So let's look at these truths. What do we have to share with people? What do we have to tell them? The first thing is, tell them about the cross. John 3, 14, and I'm just going to walk through these passages. I'm going to give them in the order that Jesus gives them as I see them. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. This is a direct reference to the cross that is yet to come. Jesus is going to be lifted up. He's going to be mounted, so to speak, on that cross. He's going to be shamefully put on the cross to die an incredibly painful, humiliating death in the sight of others. The cross is, throughout the New Testament, an offense. By that I mean, the New Testament means that 
during that time, when people looked at the cross, they would be offended by it. How could God, the Messiah, come and die on this instrument of torture, this humiliating thing? Why would God allow himself to die on this cross? He did it because the penalty of our sin had to be paid for. And we did not have the currency to pay for the penalty of our sin. Paul in Romans makes it very clear, and Jesus throughout the Gospels as well, that every single one of us have sinned. John's going to point out in just a second that we stand condemned whether we've done anything or not. We are condemned. God doesn't condemn us. We are already condemned because of our sin. So, The penalty of sin, the price for sin, had to be paid for. We don't have the currency to pay the price for our sin, so Jesus did it for us. He went to the cross. The power of the cross is for the forgiveness of our sins. It's so that the barrier between us and that holy God that we sang about earlier has been removed. The blood of Jesus covers that. Now, there's a lot of different ways to say it. There's a lot of different ways to verbalize it. But, in essence, we have to tell people about the cross. I mean, really, there is no gospel without the cross. There is no good news without Jesus Christ coming to earth and living a perfect, sinless life and then willingly going to the cross and being lifted up on my behalf and yours. Now, there might be a lot of different ways, as I said, to say it. But at the same time, we have to offer the truth of the cross to people. Listen to some passages. John says in John 4, 14, Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. How do people receive this spring of living water? They come to Jesus. They come to Jesus and drink. They come to the cross. John eleven twenty five. It says, "I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live." Acts two twenty one says, "And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved." What is Jesus saying? I, I'm saying. I, I believe he's saying, tell people about the cross. Tell people about the cross so that they can come and have life. Revelation 22 says, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. People, how can they hear unless we tell them? How can they drink unless someone offers to them the well of life? What do we have to offer? What do we have to offer? Listen, I've got four more points, but if we don't get this first one, the other four don't matter near as much. What do we have to offer? We have to offer, ultimately, the cross of Christ, which leads to the new life of the resurrection. But if we don't tell people about the cross, what do we have to offer? 
Here's my fear, and it's always my fear. I was talking to Andre about this a little bit this morning already. Too many churches have been turned into centers for moral control. In other words, what we in the church too often have to offer is, I'm going to tell you a morality by which you should live your life. That's what I have to offer. If that's all we have to offer, then we are utter failures. Because we can't change people. We, we can't teach morality as a way of life. I, I can't tell you, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, and it changed your life. What I have to offer is this, the cross of Christ. By that I mean he did it all for you. He paid the price for your sin. The gospel, the good news, hinges upon the fact that God came in the form of a man and willingly went to the cross to pay the price for my sins. It's why Paul said, listen, I got nothing but to preach Christ and him crucified. And that's a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. He determined to preach nothing but the cross in Corinth. Why? Because he knew morality ain't going to work. Intellectual things aren't going to work. Wisdom in and of itself, smart things aren't going to work. What's going to work is when people get a glimpse of the cross. We need to tell people about the cross. And again, God will give you a way to share it that can be winsome, but you've got to tell them about the sacrifice of Christ. Second point, tell them about the choice. Again, same verses, but he says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. <clears throat> Without getting into the story too much, the nation of Israel was always in trouble, right? Uh, you know, they get, they get free. Moses, as I talked about earlier, goes down, gets them set free. They get in the wilderness. They are constantly complaining. They're constantly turning away. Well, one day they finally start complaining against Moses, Moses, who was really one of the most humble men, according to the Bible, who ever lived, doesn't defend himself, but God gets fed up with the people again this time. He sends venomous snakes among the people, and they start biting people, and they start dying. The people realize this ain't good, right? I mean, they're, this is not going well for us, these venomous snakes. So they cry out to God for forgiveness. Moses intercedes on the behalf of the people, and God says to Moses, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to build a snake made out of bronze, put it on a big pole, and hold it up in front of the people. Now, I find this story fascinating because it seems like I would have wanted something quicker, right? (laughs) I mean, I got snakes here biting people, and they're dying. Okay, build a snake out of bronze on a pole and I don't know how long that process took, but I would have wanted something faster. But this is the way God does it. He builds the bronze serpent, holds it up. When the people look at it, they're healed. Now, what does this have to do with choice? Well, they could. They had a choice. Look and be healed or don't look and die. Right? Look and be healed or don't look and die. Listen, I I believe that God presents us with a choice. 
when, when we present the gospel, people have a choice to either by faith walk it out or to reject it. Listen, for those of you who believe really heavily in the sovereignty of God and doctrine of election, I know that I'm, I'm in a sticking point here. Uh, but I believe, I believe that people have a choice. People have a choice. I don't know why a person would choose otherwise. I don't know why a person would choose to reject the grace of God. I don't know why a person, but the Bible says over and over, if you confess, if you believe, if you. I believe there's a choice. And the choice we present to people is, look, we hold out the cross before them and we ask them, will you look? Will you believe? Will you receive? Third point, tell them about his care. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. When I was in high school, we did a play at church, and it was a typical church play, meaning uh, it was barely rehearsed. It was thrown together at the last minute, and you did it. And I'd done a lot of plays in high school, musicals, and all sorts of stuff. So I didn't take it very seriously. Uh, I memorized my lines, but as a part of my lines, um, the ending of it was John 3.16, where I would say, for God so loved the world. But I didn't really look at John 3.16, because like you, I'd memorized it from when I was, you know, really tiny. Well, I got up in front of people. I'm rocking this play, you know, in church. Just kidding. Uh, but I, I did everything perfect until I got to John 3.16, and then I had this, like, brain freeze. And I was like, for God, for God, what did God do? For God. I mean, really, I could not remember John 3.16 of all the lines. And the people in the audience thought it was hysterical, first of all, but they thought it was part of the play, that I could the preacher's son couldn't remember John 3.16. So I kind of... You know, when your brain freezes, you, you can't unlock it. I mean, it's in full lockdown mode, especially when you're, like, in front of people. There's not, like, undoing it. So I just kind of held out my hand like this, and they all said it with me. For God so loved the world. You know, they, they thought it was part of the play that they were supposed to quote the line. Listen, we can become so familiar with this verse that we, it loses the majesty of it. There's a reason you memorize this from when you were little. And it's the truth that this God loves you so much that he sent his one, his one and only son to die for you so that you could have eternal life, so that you wouldn't die and perish. This is how much God cares for you. There are stories over the millennia of people who have seen this verse and it has just transformed their lives. There's a little girl that learned that Jesus watches over her to see everything that she does. But at the same time, she memorized this verse. And she went home and said to her mom, God loves me, but Jesus sees everything. And her mom said, doesn't it bother you that he, can sees, that he sees everything you do? And she said, oh, 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 no. He loves me so much, he can't keep his eyes off me. I mean, really, 
We can be either like God is condemning us and he's watching everything I do, or we can say he loves me so much. He's looking at everything I do. Tell them about how much God loves them. Show them how much God loves them by loving them as well. Fourth, at some point, tell them about the consequences. Tell them about the consequences. Verses 17 and 18 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. The consequences of the gospel, the good news, are both incredibly beautiful and terribly horrific. Do do you hear me? I mean, they're incredibly beautiful, but at the same time, they're terribly horrific. In the sense of, if you choose or if you enter into, it's unbelievable the, the benefits of coming to know Christ. Romans says... If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll what? You'll be saved. The implication here and what John says in the Gospel of John is this. If you don't, the consequences are you won't be saved. Well, to be saved is to be lost. To be saved is to be eternally with God. To be lost is to be eternally separated from God. I may show this in the week ahead, uh, next week or two, but did anyone see the testimony of Monty Williams this past week? Um, Monty Williams is now the assistant basketball coach at um, Oklahoma City. He was the head basketball coach at New Orleans. He's in his middle 40s, and his wife was killed. He's the, the, they have five children. His wife was killed in a car accident a week and a half ago. And, I mean, when it happened, uh, I saw some basketball players interview guys like Kevin Durant, uh, star players for the, uh, for the Pelicans, the New Orleans team, and they were just weeping. They were talking about how, this, how Monty and his wife were, were like parents to them. Because, you know, here are these basketball stars that come out of college and suddenly making millions of dollars having no one to help give them guidance. And it was Monty and his wife, and especially his wife's, goal to to help them and they'd have these players over to dinner they were family they were like parents to them and her tragic death she's in her mid-40s just really shook the basketball world monty williams got up at his wife's uh, memorial service this past week and spoke for seven minutes seven minutes where the biggest names in basketball were all sitting on the first three rows Players of the Oklahoma City team, New Orleans team, other teams came uh, from everywhere to hear. And Monty Williams did one thing. He lifted up the name of Christ over and over again, over and over again. He talked about, I, I, I could not believe the calmness and peace that was on his life. And, and he, he ended with two things. And again, maybe I'll show it. I, I would just encourage you to go find it. Monty Williams, it's only seven minutes long. But he said this. I don't even know if I can do this without crying. He said, and he didn't cry. He said this. People have said, I'm so sorry that you lost your wife. 
And he said, I want to say to them, when you lose something, you don't know where it is. I didn't lose my wife. I know exactly where she is. The consequences of coming to know Christ is is that you will be saved. You will be saved, never lost, never forsaken. You will be saved. This passage in Revelation, we, we sang some, one of the Revelation songs earlier, but listen to this passage where John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I'm going to go ahead and read the rest of it in just a minute, but Guys, do you remember the day you saw your wife at the back of the church dressed as a bride? You know, I know they do this thing now called a, what is it called? First look. First look where? The, the husband sees the bride before the wedding. But I, I loved standing at the front of the church and seeing Kathy at the back. First look in her white wedding gown. As beautiful as my wife was and is, and she was and is beautiful. As beautiful as she was and is, it compares nothing to the bride of Christ. The consequences, as John lists them in this passage, are magnificent. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne was seated on the throne, said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write these down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this. And I will be their God and they will be my children. People, if that doesn't just grab your heart and say yes, that is the consequence of receiving Jesus Christ. We'll inherit this. He will be our God. We will be his children. As beautiful as that is, the horrific consequence of rejection is spelled out clearly. I mean, John says in, I mean, Mark, excuse me, says in Mark 9, the words of Christ, listen, the consequences of being separated from God are so unbelievable that if your eye causes you to stumble, Get rid of it. What is your eye compared to being thrown into hell? Now, I know the doctrine of hell is not all that popular these days. Um, The whole idea of being eternally separated. But the Bible is clear. The book of Revelation talks about a lake of fire. uh, Jesus talks about uh, the Lazarus and the rich man separated. And I mean, the Bible is clear about 
the separation that comes, the horrific consequences of rejection. Now, I, I know that the church too long has scared people, tried to scare people into the kingdom. In other words, the whole idea of hellfire damnation sermons that we preach for uh, uh, an hour on hell and then, you know, at the end say, okay, here's your way out with a little short deal. But we've, we've so gone the other direction that we rarely, if ever, mention the consequences of rejecting Jesus Christ. When my children were little, um, we took a parenting class. and In the parenting class, one of the things they taught us was this. Your child has a choice. Your child has a choice. They can choose to obey and receive the consequences of obedience, or they can choose to reject and receive the consequences of rejection, i.e. spanking or some other form of discipline for those of you who don't believe in spanking. Present it to them as a choice. You choose. You want this, or do you want this? The choice is there so that it doesn't make you seem like, and it's not just a mind game, it really is their choice, so to speak. The consequences of rejecting Christ are this. Jesus says, hey, by the way, it's not God who condemns you, right? You are condemned because you made the choice to be condemned. Are are you with me? In other words, we keep saying, how could God send people to hell? Well, you know, actually God doesn't. They send themselves. They are turned over to the natural consequences of their own decision. Now, for some people, that may seem like a word game, like, well, yeah, but really God sent them to hell. No, the consequences of their sin, the the holy order of things is God cannot tolerate sin. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. They stand condemned because that's the result of their choice. We need to tell people about the consequences. And finally, we need to tell them about the change that comes. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. But people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be plainly seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. When we receive the love of Christ, the cross of Christ, when we receive by faith and God's grace comes into us, we are changed forever. We are changed totally and completely. You see, here's what I believe. I believe God's love is not conditional. In in other words, God's love isn't based on how good I act or but the benefits of God's love are conditional. In other words, I only receive the benefits of the love of God when I enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. God so loved who? The world. The world. That's everybody. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. That what? Whoever believes in him may receive eternal life. God's love is unconditional. It goes out to everyone, but The benefits of his love are are conditional. 
But when I receive the benefits of the love of God, I am changed totally and completely. There's a famous preacher of 100 years ago by the name of Harry Ironside. And he was challenged to a debate by a famous atheist or agnostic. And here's what Ironside did. He said, I'll gladly debate you about the benefits of atheism if you can find me three people whose lives have been changed by embracing atheism. Whose lives have been benefited by embracing atheism. Are are you with me? And he said, I can find hundreds of people whose lives have been changed for the better by embracing Christ. You just bring me three people who have been changed for the better by embracing atheism, and we'll have this debate. Of course, the debate never took place because the atheist agnostic guy could not find people whose lives have been altered for the better by embracing atheism. Our lives are changed by embracing Christ. C.S. Lewis at some point essentially said this, most of us go to God saying, if you come into my life, could you fix the roof on my cottage? When he wants to actually turn you into a castle. He wants to do things you can't even begin to imagine. He doesn't want to come and just spruce up the shack of your life. He wants to come and radically change who you are. To turn you in. Why could Peter and John? Peter, the guy who just two months before had totally denied Christ, now is stand up and preach, and so much so that when the religious leaders call him on the carpet, the guys who could have killed him, they are so bold that even the religious leaders of the day let him go. How? Because Christ, the power of the cross, the power of the resurrection, had totally transformed his life. Paul says this, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We've been transformed. This is good, good, unbelievable news. That all of this can take place in our lives. You know what, I've given you the order that they appear in this passage. I mean, I walked straight through them. Maybe you want to put them in a different order, so to speak, these points. Maybe you want to start with the truth that God loves us or the truth that we stand condemned before God because of our sin, but that God loves us so much that he sent his son to to go to the cross to pay the ultimate penalty for our sins. And we need to look to the cross. We need to, in faith, receive it in order to be saved. And when we are saved, he comes into our lives, makes his home in our hearts, and totally changes us and transforms us. And that we have the choice to walk with him as a transformed person or to reject him and go our own way and be turned over to the consequences of our bad choices. Here's here's my two questions, really, for us. Number one, have you received this good news? Have you been transformed? 
Have you looked to the cross and received the forgiveness that comes in knowing Christ Jesus? If you have, my second question is this. Are you sharing? Are you being light in the darkness? Are you telling others boldly about who this Jesus is and what he came to do in our lives? Here's what we're going to look at in the days ahead. We're going to look at how we can continue to be bold in him. How we can continue, again, not ugly, not antagonistic. We see that too much in the world around us, but I'm talking about a holy, winsome boldness in the Lord. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you today that you have indeed changed our hearts and changed our lives. For those of us who are followers of yours, Lord, we thank you that as a result, we can be bold. Bold as a lion. The righteous are as bold as a lion. And I pray, God, that uh, you would help us to see who we are in you. We thank you, Lord, for your grace and your faithfulness in our lives. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here today who doesn't know Jesus as the one who rules their lives and forgives their sins, that God, today would be the day where they receive. They look to the cross and are saved. Lord, we, we bless you. We praise you. We rejoice in you. May we who are of the family of faith receive the boldness of the Spirit so that we can share wherever we go this goodness of God. Lord, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hopefully, you'll read this passage again, see how God has transformed us, and something will get stirred up in us in the weeks ahead about being bold in him. We're going to take up an offering. Uh, we're going to get ready to worship as an, uh, an act of worship. We're responding to the gospel. We're responding to the good news by giving back to him a portion of what he's given to us. It's not duty. It's not obligation. It's worship and thanksgiving. As you get ready, there's a white card in your bulletin. The white card um, is a connection card. If you're a guest, first-time guest, please fill it out and put it in the offering plate so that we can pray for you in the days ahead. If you're a regular attender of fullness, you know to put any prayer requests down, put it in the, the bulletin as well. Andre is going to come and give us a couple of announcements. Adrian's going to lead us in worship this, um, this morning of, of an offering. Adrian's got a new CD, and they're, they're back. Did you bring it? Um, Adrian has a new CD that she's just finished. And so um, Adrian won't push her on CD, but I will. Um, it's awesome. I've listened to it. It's great. Get it. It's in the foyer. Um, it'll bless you. It'll bless you. Um, and she's going to be doing a night of worship here on March the 4th. On Friday night? Is that Friday night? Yes. Friday night, March the 4th. She's going to be doing a night of worship where she's going to lead us in these songs. So you want to get the get it. Beforehand, so you can listen to it and be ready to come and worship that night on March 4th. Now, Andre's going to share some announcements.